The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Wagner and Winnick on the Law. For the next hour, Monterey College of Law's Dean Mitchell Winnick and law professor Stephen Wagner will discuss current legal events and public policy issues that are affecting our daily lives. They will not provide individual legal advice. If you have a specific legal problem, you're encouraged to contact a lawyer for legal assistance. If you do not have a lawyer, contact the local bar association or lawyer referral service in your community for recommendations. And now, here's Wagner and Winnick on the law. Greetings and welcome to another edition of Wagner and Winnick on the Law. I am San Luis Obispo College of Law professor and trial attorney Stephen Wagner, and my co-host Mitchell Winnick is off, enjoying a quality time off with his family on vacation. He will, will return soon. My guest today is Deputy Public Defender Michael uh, Belter. He is with the Monterey County Public Defender's Office. And as advertised, we are going to discuss the Freddie Gray case and the subsequent prosecutions that arose from that incident in Baltimore. And there are a number of topics that we want to take on today, including the issue of statements to the media and the decision to proceed with a bench trial instead of a jury trial and a number of issues that relate to the procedural aspects in that case. And uh, to help me along today, I'm really privileged to have Michael as my guest. Michael is a graduate from Marist College, and he went to law school at Western State University in San Diego, and he's been practicing since 1981 with extensive experience in criminal defense work down in Southern California in San Bernardino County, Riverside County, and L.A., including state and federal prosecution experience and he has a wealth of experience that will help us today and uh, advance our discussions. As you know, I am a former prosecutor, so Michael, you'll have an opportunity to balance the ship out today. Welcome to the program. Thank you for being here. Thanks a lot. I look forward to... Uh I look forward to talking about it. You know, so Michael, we, we do a, a plug and an advertisement a little bit in advance for our topics today. And I did want to lead in uh, and absolutely acknowledge and get a message out to the Dallas police officers and their families. Uh, thoughts and prayers go out to them. It is a tragic incident that remains under investigation. Uh, but we're not going to go into that topic today, but I did want to get it out. Uh, it, of course, it does relate to um, police and citizen interaction. And we have an opportunity to talk about it within the context of the Freddie Gray trial. Yeah, no, it's a, it was a tragedy, and uh, what happened in Dallas, uh, and everything I've heard or read about, uh, it looks as if the Dallas police, they were extremely transparent in uh, in their uh, community relations, and um, so they, they were attempting to do it the right way. I think down in, in Dallas, it does sound that way. So let's get into the Freddie Gray case. You know, where some might think we're a day late and a dollar short in terms of. T- 
taking that topic on now. But the unique thing about our program is we do get an opportunity to look at these issues in an objective manner. And, you know, Michael, in advance, we put a couple of things on the board for our discussion today. And I wanted to just lead off with one that relates to statements to the media in advance of trial. So pre-trial statements made by either the elected prosecutor or someone in charge of prosecuting a case. What's your take on, on what should or shouldn't be disseminated to the media? Well, you know, what's interesting is that um, in, the, in this particular case, in the Gray case, uh, the district attorney, uh, you know, she was very uh, uh, prominent in the, in, the, uh, in, the, in the media and the publicity uh, surrounding the uh, death of Freddie Gray. She uh, held a number of press conferences uh, both before and after uh, the district attorney's office took the matter to before the grand jury. You know, generally, um, pre-trial publicity is um, it's, it's frowned upon. Your any kind of extrajudicial statement that that's, uh, is made either by the prosecution or the defense, it's, it has to be extremely tailored. Um, the concern is that ultimately you're um, you're addressing prospective jurors, and uh, the the premium is in not tainting or uh, creating a bias or prejudice um, one way or another from a. a with respect to the uh, general uh, pool or the veneer, um, you know, in, in the great case, actually, there is a gag order uh, that was uh, that was uh, uh, made or, or uh, ordered, uh, you know, keeping uh, both sides from uh, from trying the case in the public. Yeah, you know, what's interesting about the gag order, Michael, and I'm glad you mentioned that. <clears throat> that's usually issued at a point that the parties get before the court, maybe in motions and limine, pre-trial motions, so to speak. But you know, in a case where an elected official, a prosecutor in this case, and this would be Miss Mosby, is given an opportunity to speak about it case. And I suppose if you think about it, Michael, the same thing can happen if you shift over to the other side of the V. You know, very often an elected public mm -hmm. defender may have an opportunity to speak about a case. Right. There are dictates, uh, rules of engagement. The American Bar Association, for instance, would have rule statements on the issue of what you can or cannot say. And frankly, it needs to be pretty vanilla, doesn't it? It has to be incredibly vanilla. Um, in fact, there's a limitation that um, no extrajudicial statements that uh, the, uh, the party making the statement knows uh, will be publicly disseminated and have any kind of an effect on um, or prejudicial or, or a biased effect on prospective jurors. Um, you know, the, there's a limitation. The, the, uh, the, uh, either the district attorney or the, uh, the uh, defense counsel um, are not, not permitted to make those kind of statements. And you had mentioned the concern over potentially tainting or influencing prospective jurors. I think that's another interesting point because, you know, on the one hand, m people might think that it's rather innocuous to make a statement because the odds of the statement reaching or influencing somebody is that significant. Yet, if you really think about it, with a case with this kind of interest and scrutiny, and if you focus squarely upon Baltimore mm -hmm. as the listening audience, 
I would assume it would exemplify, or I'm, I'm sorry, magnify the, the concern. Sure. I mean, the, there in the Freddie Gray case, again, my understanding is that Freddie, Mr. Gray dies about a week after he sustains the injuries. Uh, during that week, the death watch, so to speak, the public is becoming increasingly outraged. Upon his death, that's when there's, there's uh, comments made by the district attorney. Uh, within two weeks there, the, the district attorney's office is taking the case to the to the grand jury, which is a little bit of an unusual uh, way to prosecute the case. Un- unusual in the, in the swiftness of it? Is it, that what you mean? I think in the in the swiftness. Generally, I mean, uh, using the model in California, you know, once an arrest warrant is uh, issued and we have individuals who are brought before uh, a court, uh, generally the district attorney will proceed with a preliminary hearing, which may occur, it can occur inside of 10 days, but it can also uh, be, there can be continuances in order for both sides or for the defense to prepare their case properly. Yeah, and we've we've previously spoken about grand jury proceedings in one of our past shows, not within the backdrop of the Freddie Gray case, of course, but the decision to go to the grand jury versus presenting a case to preliminary hearing is another one that's really discussion-worthy, too. What Your thoughts as a, as a defense attorney, a veteran defense attorney, what do you think about that? Well, you know, a grand jury is designed for the prosecution to present evidence uh, to uh, citizens, but it's only, it's a one-way street. There's no uh, give and take. There's no opportunity to cross-examine witnesses. Um, the It's expected that all evidence is being presented to the grand jury, but there's no watchdog there to make sure that any, any evidence that's exculpatory um, is being presented. Well, there are some mechanisms in place to ensure that the defense has an opportunity to share exculpatory evidence, right? That's correct. But, but your point is correct in the sense that it's certainly if you thought about the public's view of a grand jury, they would think of it as more of a lopsided affair. That's certainly a public uh, perception. Okay. I mean, the mere fact that you don't have defense counsel in the tribunal, in the room or where the, assemb- where the grand jury is assembled, that alone makes it seem a little bit lopsided, right? Exactly. Okay. Exactly. So the decision to go to the grand jury in this case, and I think you make a good point, it did happen rather swiftly. Right. In fact, um, indictments are handed down, uh, my recollection is May 21st, which is, um, you know, just just slightly over a month late after Mr. Gray dies. uh, And the grand jury proceeding was two weeks long. Yeah. And so, um, yeah, within two weeks of uh, Mr. Uh, Gray's uh, death, uh, the the district attorney's uh, gone to the grand jury. And then to recap, Michael, and go through what happened procedurally, let's take that on a little bit. Uh, There were several officers who were criminally charged. Correct. And the first one went to jury trial, and there was a hung jury, correct? Correct. That's uh, Officer Porter. Um, and he was, uh, there was a hung jury. His his case, there was a mistrial declared. His case is coming back for possible retrial in September so, of this year. So it has a September date, and as you mentioned, possible retrial, because we kind of have to, that's a bit of a drum roll there, because we have to see what happens with some of these other cases, right? Correct. Then it's followed by back-to-back bench trials, which is also also known as a judge trial. Exactly, and that's uh, officers Narrow and Goodson. Uh, and both of those uh, officers were acquitted by way of uh, order. Well, the, the Judge uh, Williams. Let's pick that back up after the break. We're coming in on our break. You're listening to Wagner and Winnick on the Law on the BizTalk Radio Network and over Voice America. My guest today is uh, defense attorney Michael Belter. Don't go away. We'll be right back. 
Deciding to go to law school brings up questions like, can I afford it? Will I be prepared to take the leap and open my own office when I graduate? I'm Wendy Law Revere, Dean of Admissions at Monterey College of Law. Have you ever dreamed of being a lawyer? We at Monterey College of Law can help make that dream come true with professors who are practicing attorneys and judges. They mentor our graduates. But don't take it from me. Hear what recent graduate Creighton Mandeville says. I wasn't crippled in debt coming out of Monterey College of Law. I came out of it with no debt. I was able to do some working during that time and some savings, so I exited law school with no debt. I did feel prepared coming out of law school. I started helping friends with the issues that came up for them, and Monterey College of Law has so many great faculties and things that there were resources for me. There's never been a better time to become a lawyer. Call us today at 582-4000. That's 582-4000. Or visit us online at montereylaw.edu. That's montereylaw.edu. For 45 years, the Boys and Girls Clubs of Monterey County have been a vital part of our community. The club's mission is to inspire and empower the youth of Monterey County to realize their full potential to become responsible, healthy, productive, and successful citizens. As just one of the club's programs, more than 12,000 children and families have enjoyed safe after-school care at the Boys and Girls Club's Salinas Clubhouse. The Boys and Girls Club of Monterey County is very excited to announce that Monterey College of Law is providing one full tuition law school scholarship each year to a former Boys and Girls Club participant. For more information about this exciting opportunity, contact President and CEO Donna Ferrero at dferrero at bgmc.org or call 831-757-4412. Beginning with the Continental Congress in 1774, America's national legislative bodies have kept records of their proceedings. Did you know that these records are available to you online for free? This is Mitchell Winnick, co-host of Wagner and Winnick on the Law, with a reminder that there are times that you can take the law into your own hands. Congress.gov is the official website for the U.S. House of Representatives and the U.S. Senate. It is published by the Library of Congress and includes the public records of the U.S. Congress, the Government Publishing Office, and the Congressional Budget Office. Remember, members of Congress work for us, and if you want to see what they're doing, go to congress.gov and watch the actual sessions of Congress, or look up any law that's being proposed. That's congress.gov, C-O-N-G-R-E-S-S dot gov. Are you ready to start law school now? If you just graduated from college or just thinking of changing your career, now is the time to take that first step. Slow College of Law is accepting applications for May 2016. The San Luis Obispo College of Law is an accredited branch of the Monterey College of Law School, founded 43 years ago. You can get a law degree from an accredited law school right here in San Luis Obispo. Their highly esteemed faculty is comprised of local judges and lawyers. San Luis Obispo College of Law classes are held conveniently in the evenings, and the campus is conveniently located in downtown San Luis Obispo. Let the professionals show you how to make becoming a lawyer a reality. Make today the first step in changing your life. Attend an information session and get answers to your questions. Call Dean of Admission Wendy Law Revere at 805-439-4096. Visit slowlaw.org for more information. That's slowlaw.org. 
Welcome back to Wagner and Winnick on the Law. If you are just joining us, we're talking about the Freddie Gray prosecutions. And my in-studio guest today is Monterey County P Deputy Public Defender, Michael Belter. And Michael, uh, before the break, we were talking about sort of the order in which the prosecutions proceeded. We, we started this case with one hung jury. And as you had mentioned, that case sort of hangs in the balance. We'll see whether or not that officer is retried in September. That's correct. Yeah. And then following that, there were back-to-back -back bench trials, correct? Correct. Uh, officers uh, Nero and Goodson. And just to recap, what were their roles? Well, Nero, uh, Nero appears to be an one of the officers who uh, is involved in the uh, detention, the initial detention of uh, Mr. Gray. Uh, Goodson um, is the driver of the van. Okay, so Goodson's the driver and probably, I would think, one who would be cast as really the heavy or the potential bad actor. Right. Well, you know, uh, the facts and circumstances of Mr. Gray's death is that after he's detained, and there's a question of whether or not he was properly detained for a good reason, etc., whether, whether or not there was probable cause to actually detain him. Um, and in fact, that was some of the, number of the officers have been charged with malfeasance, uh, misconduct, uh, in essence, misconduct for uh, uh, participating in, in the illegal detention of Mr. Gray. But Goodson is the driver of the paddy wagon or the van. And that's the allegation is that Mr. Gray dies as a result of neck injury that he sustains from what's been referred to as a rough ride. Right. So he's improperly, allegedly improperly restrained. Correct. And yeah. then the so-called rough ride then transpired. And of course, the driver is, well, was Goodson. Right. In fact, uh, one of the other uh, uh, facts and circumstances surrounding Mr. Goodson's prosecution is there's an allegation that he stopped and put on leg restraints on Mr. Gray so that there was an opportunity to actually uh, shackle him further or that the, the officer shackled him further and made him more of a vulnerable target in the van. Um, and so uh, Officer Goodson has uh, been recently tried by way of a bench trial and acquitted by uh, Judge Williams. Okay. And Judge Williams, I think, presided also over the new trial, correct? Correct. Yeah, so back-to-back -back acquittals, bench trials, and the sitting judge, I think the background of that judge was... Well, it, judge Williams, uh, from it appears that he has a history of working with the uh, district attorney in Baltimore, that he was a, a line prosecutor and he prosecuted police misconduct cases. So he's been on the bench for some years, but he uh, his, his uh, history as a prosecutor is that he prosecuted um, police misconduct. Interesting. Yeah. Okay, so... Well, it's certainly an interesting point because you have two... In Baltimore, in Maryland, uh, the defense has the option of waiving jury. Right. Now, we, and we had talked about that off here. Let's air that one out sure. officially. Uh, the rule in, in uh, the state of Maryland is that the defendant can waive jury trial. Correct. And it doesn't require a waiver on the part of the prosecution. Correct. Now, in California, both sides have to waive to have a bench trial. And we had that discussion, and right. I was intrigued by that, and more so because I was wondering about why somebody would be inspired to waive jury trial, which leads me to this other issue. And let's go back to this one. Preliminary hearing versus grand jury. You had some, some insights on that. Sure. Well, you know, a preliminary hearing is an opportunity in a certain sense for both sides to get a public hearing on the evidence. In California, use California as an example of, uh, for preliminary hearing. There, the district attorney is, um, is, uh, presents 
many times, not all the time, but oftentimes live witnesses. Um, and they basically put their uh, case to a, like a test, uh, test the, their case. And a, a judge presides and can make rulings um, as to the, the, the actual charges that the, uh, the, the accused or the defendant is going to now face. So there is a public hearing and it's there's the defense counsel's there. Defense has an opportunity to cross-examine the witnesses who are called by the prosecution. So in a, in a sense, it's sort of a, a test run of the evidence. Now, that doesn't happen in the Freddie Gray case. That's right. And that, I, I think that's probably discussion-worthy. Let, let's get into that a little bit. Because sure. the standard in the preliminary hearing in terms of the standard of proof for the benefit of our listeners is much lower than beyond a reasonable doubt, which sure. is the standard in a jury trial. Right. So in other words, to, to, to uh, attain a holding order in a preliminary hearing, there must be sufficient evidence to establish that the defendant was involved with the crime. Correct. And that would sustain a holding order, typically. Sometimes it's loosely called a probable cause hearing. Exactly. I mean, you know, among defense counsel um, who look at the uh, preliminary hearing as, sure, it's an opportunity to sort of see what the evidence is. But in, in California, it's basically, is there evidence that an offense occurred? And is there a good possibility that the accused is involved in the case? Yeah. Okay. So let me get your thoughts on, because this is this intrigues me. Um, what are your thoughts as to, to why the, the preliminary hearing might have been the better route? Well, the better route uh, is, to, you know, the, the, there was a lot of publicity. There was tremendous tension. Um, if the prosecution in the Gray case was apt to proceed without a, a complete and thorough investigation... There's reason for it. I mean, the, the public was outraged, as they should be. Um, but, you know, at that point, um, the, the prosecutors in two weeks are presenting their case to a grand jury. And the, the, one has to wonder, have they done a, a thorough investigation? There was an interesting uh, point uh, I read in one of the uh, news accounts, I believe, from the Baltimore newspaper, is that there has been some evidence that Mr. Gray had suffered uh, a neck injury about a month before his detention and the ill-fated uh, ride which has been coming out in the course of the trials, but not necessarily, uh, one can only think that it was not uh, considered in the ultimate uh, decision of, uh, of what to present to the grand jury. And that may well have factored into the proximate cause exactly. aspect and no, causation. Exactly. Yeah, that is interesting. Yeah. So, um, again, you know, we, we, we talked briefly about a grand jury. You know, a grand jury is a, uh, it's an opportunity for the prosecution to present their case, but not in public and not, not uh, uh, under the watchful eye of, of the defense counsel. Right. So much more scrutiny placed upon the presentation of the evidence in a prelim correct. than a grand jury. Correct? Yes, absolutely. All right. And then what about subsequent use of the evidence that's gleaned or reduced in a grand jury versus preliminary hearing? Well, there's no obligation to present uh, the testimony of those witnesses in the grand jury. Oftentimes, uh, at least in my federal practice, and I, I don't practice in the state of Maryland, but I have practiced extensively in the federal courts in the central district of uh, California. Um, often, you know, there the, the uh, United States attorneys will uh, present to the grand jury and obtain an indictment. But you you're not handed over the testimony of witnesses at that grand jury. That's exactly where I wanted you to go. Yeah, yeah. it's very interesting. Yeah. And the implications are very significant when you think about how, how it's used, how that evidence is used. Absolutely. The other thing, Michael, that I wanted to hear you uh, speak about maybe is the, the means of challenging the grand jury's findings. So they return what's called a true bill. 
Correct. And that then turns into what's called an indictment. Yes. As opposed to a prelim, which then makes the complaint turn into what's called an information. Correct. Right? Yes. So there's different procedural attacks. In California, and I'll only speak to California, but sure. in California, you can challenge uh, the holding order of what we'll call the magistrate court, but uh, the prelim court, the prelim preliminary hearing judge. You can challenge those orders, those holding orders. Uh, quite frankly, in California, you can also challenge uh, an indictment. Let's pick back up the sure. challenges when we come back from this break. You're listening to Wagner and Winnick on the Law on the BizTalk Radio Network and over Voice America. Remember that you can reach us by emailing us at comments at wagnerandwinnick.com comments at wagnerandwinnick.com we'll be right back with our in-studio guest Monterey County Deputy Public Defender Michael Belcher don't go away Applying to Monterey College of Law is not hard, and we have a financial plan and class schedule that is tailored to meet your needs. I'm Wendy Law-Revere, Dean of Admissions at Monterey College of Law. Have you ever dreamed of being a lawyer? We at Monterey College of Law can help make that dream come true without crippling you with debt on graduation day. I chose Monterey College of Law because I wanted to continue working during the day. I had children at home, and I wanted to be able to go to school at night where it wouldn't impact what my children needed from me. There really is not crippling debt that you face afterwards. Monterey College of Law has a payment plan which is manageable, and they work with you. The other huge benefit of Monterey College of Law is that the professors are judges and lawyers. By taking their classes, you really actually start networking. So I was very fortunate because I also ended up with a mentor. There's never been a better time to become a lawyer. Call us today at 582-4000 or visit us online at montereylaw.edu. For decades, the students at Monterey College of Law have graduated and gone on to pass the bar and become successful attorneys. However, not everyone goes to Monterey College of Law to become an attorney. I'm Wendy Law-Revere, Dean of Admissions at Monterey College of Law. We also offer students our two-year Master of Legal Studies degree, which can enhance their chosen careers. I was working as a deputy coroner for San Mateo County as a death scene investigator, and I wanted a better idea of the legal issues that were involved in forensic investigations. Everything about Monterey College of Law was accommodating to the uh, course of study I was trying to find. I graduated from Monterey College of law with no outstanding debt. I'm working as an investigator for the San Mateo County Private Defender's Office performing indigent defense investigations. For more information, call us today at 582-4000. That's 582-4000. Or visit us online at montereylaw.edu. That's montereylaw.edu. If you are a small business owner, you're subject to many of the same laws and regulations that apply to large corporations. Where do you go for help? This is Mitchell Winnick, co-host of Wagner and Winnick on the Law, with a reminder that there are times that you can take the law into your own hands. SBA.gov is the website published by the Small Business Administration. It provides a wealth of information for small business owners, including employment and labor law, intellectual property law, online business laws and regulations, environmental regulations, workplace safety, and foreign worker eligibility. Of course, SBA.gov is not a replacement for having your own business attorney, but it is a free resource that may help you realize when you need to consult an attorney.
sba.gov. Have you thought about a law degree? Did you know you can attend an accredited law school right here in San Luis Obispo? And you can begin classes in May or in August. I'm Wendy Law Revere, Dean of Admissions of San Luis Obispo College of Law. San Luis Obispo College of Law is a branch of Monterey College of Law, an accredited law school established 44 years ago. At San Luis Obispo College of Law, we have convenient evening classes, Mondays through Thursdays from 6.30 to 9.30 p.m. We have a tuition rate guarantee program that freezes your tuition rate when you begin and protects you from annual tuition increases. We also have payment programs that allow you to make monthly payments or apply for private student loans. At San Luis Obispo College of Law, our faculty is composed of highly esteemed local lawyers and judges. If you've been thinking about a law degree, find out now if San Luis Obispo College of Law is your law school. Attend one of our information sessions and get answers to your questions. Or call me, Wendy Law Revere, at 805-439-4096. Visit slowlaw.org. That's slolaw.org. It is one thing to argue with your friends at the bar, but have you ever wondered what it would be like to argue in front of the United States Supreme Court? This is Mitchell Winnick, co-host of Wagner and Winnick on the Law, with a reminder that there are times that you can take the law into your own hands. Oye.org, spelled O-Y-E-Z dot O-R-G, is a website published by the Free Law Project at Chicago Kent School of Law. You can go to Oye.org and listen to 60 years of actual oral arguments at the United States Supreme Court. Written summaries are provided for cases that go all the way back to 1789. OEA.org also provides biographical information on every United States Supreme Court justice and offers an online tour of the Supreme Court building. Go to OEA.org to see if you have what it takes to present a winning argument. Welcome back to Wagner and Winnick on the Law. You're listening to us on the BizTalk Radio Network and over Voice America. And you can always reach us by emailing to comments at wagnerandwinnick.com. Comments at wagnerandwinnick.com. My in-studio guest today is Monterey County Deputy Public Defender Michael Belter. And our topic is the Freddie Gray trial. Currently, Michael, Lieutenant Rice stands trial. Yeah. In fact, uh, my understanding is that Rice also waived jury. Um, he did. Yeah, the, my, that, that's my reading of the paper. Now I, I could stand. I'll, could, I'll stand corrected if I'm wrong, but that's my understanding. And I believe he's also in front of Judge uh, Williams. So he waived jury, and he stands trial for what is it? It's a negligent. It's negligent homicide, right. correct? I mean, we, in California, we'd call it an involuntary manslaughter. Involuntary manslaughter. But it's basically criminal negligent homicide. All right. Um, so let's talk. Let's get into the classroom a little bit on sure. some of the issues because. Um, and, and let me invite you to talk about mental state. There's sure. no allegation here that any of the officers intended to kill correct. Freddie Gray. Because even yeah, you're correct. In fact, um, uh, Mr. Or Officer Goodson is also charged. He's he's charged with the, the greatest uh, or the, the most severe offense, which is uh, second degree murder. Um, just to digress, second degree murder is a, 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 a an act done in. Uh, Reckless disregard for life. A typical uh, sort of a law school example is shooting into a uh, a moving train. 
You don't really care if you hit somebody. I'm smiling but, because I still use the analogy. Yeah. Well, I tell you, my law school professor talked about dropping a bowling ball off of a uh, freeway overpass into traffic. All right. If Don't get me started on analogies because right. we'll be here till 6 o'clock. But it's a good one. It's essentially looking at risk and flipping at the bird. Right. And proceeding to, to act in the way you're acting. Right. In fact, in the Gray case, I would think uh, if you were going to make out that case, you were going to need to have officers who would testify that um, this was was a very customary thing to do and that they knew that people were, would be injured as a result of uh, rough rides. Okay, good. So you've kind of just framed one of the sort of platform arguments that would need to be made by the right. prosecution. In fact, the judge, uh, you know, the defense argued uh, in the uh, Goodson case that it was a tragic freak accident that no one could have foresaw. The judge, Williams, basically said there was insufficient evidence to show that, his fel- that um, Goodson's failure to place a seatbelt on Mr. Gray uh, created a serious risk to Gray's life and and led to his death. So that's why he was. That's why Judge Williams acquitted uh, Mr. Uh, Officer Goodson. Okay, so that's now built into the record. That's built into the record. Interesting. Now, yeah. Now that sounds like a major gap area to me. Well, exactly, because now Lieutenant Rice is not involved in the in transportation of Mr. Gray. Lieutenant Rice is, um, he's on the scene. He's basically a supervising officer. His, uh, you know, the facts and circumstances surrounding his uh, prosecution is that he failed to uh, monitor or uh, make sure that Mr. Gray had an appropriate seatbelt on. Okay, now the one thing that I find interesting on the potential culpability of Rice is the theory in terms of whether it's vicarious in nature or is it a form of direct culpability? Well, if he has a duty to uh, ensure that Mr. Gray has a seatbelt on, uh, and he doesn't, uh, and that's a duty or that's a responsibility, um, there must be a reason why you'd have a seatbelt on. Okay. I mean, think of it as a parent is puts has needs to put a, 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 an infant in a car seat. If you don't put the infant in a car seat, and then you have an accident, and the infant goes flying through the window, that parent, as tragic as, uh, as that situation is, that parent could be criminally liable for. Uh, criminal uh, negligence. Yeah, and that's that's an omission-to-act scenario, where exactly. omissions could rise to the same level as intentional acts in terms of assigning culpability. Right, and, and quite frankly, if Rice uh, not only... I mean, I could I, I, you could make an argument from the prosecutor's standpoint that he has a duty or a responsibility to make sure that uh, Mr. Gray is uh, belted in, but, um, you know, the, the flip side of that is that he, he may have... Port- made sure that he didn't, he wasn't beat, seat, uh, belted in. He, if he had told uh, uh, Goodson, hey, take this guy off on a, on a rough ride, then... Giving a directive. Exactly. Yeah, then we're talking about pretty, pretty overt, strong evidence to right. support that there was an, a mental state, a mens rea, as exactly. we would say. Yeah. Okay, so now, what's your take on the acquittal of Goodson and how it impacts the subsequent prosecution of Rice? Because what I'm thinking of is... It's got to be an Achilles heel to the prosecution. Oh, I, I mean, uh, from a defense standpoint, from the defense counsel standpoint, uh, yeah. I mean, you, an Achilles heel is you, you just had the, the individual who uh, is uh, alleged to be the, the perpetrator, the alleged to be the driver um, of Mr. Gray's uh, uh, um, fatal ride. But now uh, Lieutenant Rice is somebody who's just on scene making sure that Gray gets put in the van and taken down to the police station. Right. 
So, yeah, I would say that that's a, if you can't get Goodson, and he's the one who's actually caused the injury. Yeah, so not that we're in the prediction business. Right. And we, and we are, in fact, just handicapping. And as you aptly pointed out, we're, we're basing this off the release stories that we find. Neither one of us is monitoring this in the courtroom. But as you look at what's happened procedurally, my thought is that the record has been built up so as to uh, remove culpability from Goodson. Yeah, well, that's what his acquittal does. Yeah, and then that coupled with what you had mentioned previously, the, the bench statement, the statements from the judge, right. previously that there was what? There was a, a flat-out gap in evidence to support that there was what? An intent to do a rough ride? That's what the, that's what the, you know I've read in the in the uh, papers the Baltimore papers yeah that, that's a quote from the judge as he's issuing the order yeah so he, it's on the record because he articulated as part of his holding order or right. his finding his finding yeah interesting and then in a bench trial Michael the other thing that I think our listeners would be interested in hearing because I, well I get this question from students a lot the judge sitting presiding in a bench trial makes all the decisions on admissibility. That's absolutely true. When you first experienced this, because you've been at it longer than me, I got to believe that you were a little bit uneasy with the bench trial venue. You know, it all depends on the judge, quite okay. frankly. I mean, and it also depends on the case you have. Yeah. If, if it's a case that has sophisticated um, legal issue, um, sometimes, quite frankly, you might want a, a bench trial because if, the, if you trust the judge you know, based on your, your, your history, your knowledge of the judge, that the judge is going to read cases, is going to follow the precedent, is uh, not going to go off the reservation, but is going to stick to the law. Quite frankly, a bench trial might be a, might be a, a very good idea. Okay, because I wanted to look at that topic a little bit with you and, because I think it's intriguing to look at the prosecutor's perspective versus defense counsel's perspective. You know, when I first encountered it as a prosecutor, whether it was bench versus jury trial, and what I mean there is the decision and, and the, the contemplation that's required, I would think that if I place the decision in the hands of 12 jurors, and I always include the alternates, let's right. say for hypothetical, it's going to be 14, 12 plus 2, right? right? I'm counting on their wisdom and their ability right, to, to work through all the facts, whereas in a bench trial, I've only got the judge. Right. Well, and quite frankly, you know, the, the idea of a jury of 12 people is that the collective wisdom of 12 people, you would expect that the, the right decision would be had. They would reach the right decision. Whereas with the judge, uh, you have one person who's, you know, again, your, your, uh, your concern is that that judge may be jaded, that judge may have heard all these things. Judge is not going to be moved by, by the emotion. Um, but the judge will stay within the four corners of the law. And remain objective. Exactly. And in this particular case, which was so volatile, and the citizenry of uh, Baltimore were so ups so enraged, um, you needed to bring it down. You needed it to calm down and have uh, rational decisions being made. Are, are you of the opinion that a jury trial would have been the better procedure? Well, I, I think the district attorney would like to have had a jury trial. Yeah, because you know, and, and again, we're 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 projecting a little bit, but um, absent a change of venue, 
um, and um, that city is is going to tear itself apart. You know, we had spoken before we went on air. You know, there was a case some years ago. Uh, a lawyer I know, Judy Clark, represented a, a Susan Smith. Susan Smith case. Mm-hmm. I believe it was in North Carolina. Yep. And Susan Smith was uh, charged with uh, killing her children by driving them into a lake, um, and. I know the nation was enraged about that case. I mean, how, how horrific. Um, death penalty kind of en- enragement. Um, that uh, jury, that local jury, um, did not impose a death penalty, did not recommend to come back with a death verdict on, on Susan Smith. And, and the reason, you know, one would suggest is that they knew Susan Smith. Yeah, now, now you're getting right into something that we'll pick up in the next segment because that's going to be the issue of how much influence the public should have. And I think where you're headed now is that when we look at the public, we don't just look at the nation. We actually look a little bit more locally. You're listening to Wagner and Winnick on the Law on the BizTalk Radio Network and over Voice America. My in-studio guest is criminal defense attorney Michael Belter, and we're talking about the Freddie Gray case and the current trials and the past trials. Don't go away. We'll be right back after this short break. Making a change in career is a serious decision that affects both you and your family. You have many questions that need to be answered before you can make a commitment. I'm Wendy Law Revere, Dean of Admissions at Monterey College of Law. Have you ever dreamed of being a lawyer? We at Monterey College of Law can help make that dream come true. And it's affordable. But don't take it from me. Hear what recent graduate Dan Cullum says. Before I was entering law school, I was an airline pilot. After I retired, I decided that I would go to law school. Monterey College of Law was the avenue to fulfill that desire. I loved Monterey College of Law. It was small classes. The professors were very helpful, personal. You could talk to them. Tuition is not exorbitant at Monterey College of Law, which is the opposite of the way it is at other places. It's affordable. They have a a program at Monterey College of Law that lets you pay as you go, so it's financially possible. There's never been a better time to become a lawyer. Call us today at 582-4000 or visit us online at montereylaw.edu. Long before Woody's cruised Beach Street, kids and teens have needed to know that they are important and that they belong. Since 1969, the Boys and Girls Club of Santa Cruz has provided a place where potential is released and great futures are forged. Help celebrate our 45th anniversary by emailing your club memories and pictures to celebrate 45 years at boysandgirlsclub.info or call 423-3138, extension 23. We are also excited to announce that Monterey College of Law is providing one full tuition law school scholarship each year to a former Boys and Girls Club participant. Contact Executive Director Bob Langseth at 423-3138, extension 21, or email bob at boysandgirlsclub.info to learn more about this exciting opportunity. Consumer scams, fraud, deceptive business practices. Where do you go for protection? This is Mitchell Winnick, co-host of Wagner and Winnick on the Law, with a reminder that there are times that you can take the law into your own hands. FTC.gov is the website published by the Federal Trade Commission. As the nation's consumer protection agency, the FTC wants to know about businesses that cheat people out of money. 
If you've been the victim of consumer fraud, you should file a complaint at FTC.gov. Although the FTC's Bureau of Consumer Protection will not help you recover your individual damages, your complaint may initiate an investigation that results in companies or individuals being sued by the government for fraud, deceptive practices, or unfair business practices. If you want more information about how to protect yourself as a consumer, go to the Bureau of Consumer Protection at FTC.gov. Are you ready to start law school now? If you've just graduated from college or are thinking of changing your career, now is the time to take that first step. Slow College of Law is accepting applications for May 2016. San Luis Obispo College of Law is an accredited branch of the Monterey College of Law School founded 43 years ago. You can get a law degree from an accredited law school right here in San Luis Obispo. Their highly esteemed faculty is comprised of local judges and lawyers. San Luis Obispo College of Law classes are held conveniently in the evenings and the campus is conveniently located in downtown San Luis Obispo. Let the professionals show you how to make becoming a lawyer a reality. Make today the first step in changing your life. Attend an information session and get answers to your questions. Call Dean of Admissions Wendy LaRiviere at 805-439-4096. Visit slowlaw.org for more information. That's slowlaw.org. The U.S. Constitution has recently created national headlines in the debate about filling the vacancy created by the sudden death of Supreme Court Justice Antonin Scalia. The president and certain members of Congress are at odds about what the Constitution requires when there's a vacancy on the Supreme Court. Who is right? And how can everyday citizens be informed enough to know the answer? This is Mitchell Winnick, co-host of Wagner and Winnick on the Law, with a reminder that there are times that you can take the law into your own hands. ConstitutionCenter.org is a website published by the National Constitution Center. The center was established by Congress to provide information about the United States Constitution on a nonpartisan basis. If you want information about the Constitution's history and what it means today, go to ConstitutionCenter.org and form your own opinion about the law. Welcome back to Wagner and Winnick on the Law. If you are just joining us, we are in the stretch drive, the last segment. I wish actually we had two hours today because we're getting into some really good topics. We've been talking about the Freddie Gray case, the past prosecutions, and what uh, lies ahead in terms of uh, subsequent prosecutions. And my in-studio guest today is Monterey County Deputy Public Defender Michael Belter. And I want to get a shout out and a thank you to Michelle Wooden for recommending that you come in, Michael, today. And thank you for for joining oh yeah anytime um, so here's where let's pick up with what we talked about uh, before the last break and you had introduced the Susan Smith case and I think you did that uh, for the purpose of illustrating sort of the how we define the public is that where you were going yeah, absolutely absolutely so expand a little bit more on that well well think of it this way I mean we're all sure we're in the United States of America but you know California has a different view of things Texas has a different view of things um, North Carolina does but but even more than just the states the local communities I mean here in Santa Cruz it's a Bernie country right but up in San Francisco maybe it's Hillary country yeah we're, we're only separated by 50 miles you know in Baltimore um, 
you know, there was, uh, you think about the dynamic. I mean, Mr. Gray is, uh, is injured. He's in the hospital. He dies a week later. But this is on the heels of four other very high-profile deaths. Uh, Michael Brown uh, was uh, killed in Ferguson. Tammy Rice in Cleveland. Eric, um, I think it's Eric Gardner in Santa, uh, on Staten Island. And then Walker Scott in North Charleston, South Carolina. So these were four uh, African-Americans who've been killed by police officers. Officers and uh, you know that not just the local public, uh, but the nation is starting to become extremely enraged. And now we have Freddie Gray. Yeah. Um, and you know there was um, there's a very young district attorney, uh, uh, Ms. Mosby, uh, who has a long history. Her family has all been police officers, uh, have been involved in law enforcement in Baltimore, and now she's uh, being presented. She's been recently elected. She's being presented with this case yeah um, and the public uh, is really enraged in w- w- with good cause by the way yeah no I'm with you and th- let me take the opportunity to take that lead and talk about what I'll introduce it as potential pressure placed on the prosecution sure so it's a na- there's national attention on it and I think you're right to point out that rather than just thinking nationally let's think about Baltimore specifically sure. because when Miss Mosby has an opportunity to speak to the public the real target audience there would be the citizens of Baltimore probably one would hope that that was the target audience but remember we have national media and so in, of course. in, in the backdrop and the dynamic of what had been uh, happening in the preceding uh, six seven months it, year, um, you have a national audience too. Yeah. So off air, I, I, I prompted you and, and mentioned that I wanted to talk about how much influence the media or the public should have. Let, let's talk about that a little bit. What do you think? Well, the, I think the media or public should not have any influence on it. Quite frankly. Okay, so in terms of a charging decision. The charging decision is left up to the prosecutors. Remember, the, the, the prosecutors uh, have incredible discretion. You know, they are charged with the responsibility to review evidence that they have investigators, they have investigative branches of their of their office, uh, police police agencies, etc. But they have to review the evidence, and based on that evidence, after careful analysis, they have the responsibility to charge the case. Um, they're not there to satiate the the public outcry. They're, right there. Okay, so now you, you mentioned they shouldn't satiate or really cater to public outcry. And right. I, I would agree with you on that point. Yes. However, the one thing I wanted to, to comment on is the expectations of the public and as it relates to what I'll call consistency in charging. Mm-hmm. Let, me, let me get you to weave into that one a little bit. Sure. Well, you know, what's very interesting is here in the state of California, I think we have 58 counties. Certain counties um, are very... Um, they, they pursue the, the capital punishment uh, uh, aggressively. Yeah, there's, so if you look at it like almost like a political map, yes. I think you can do it that way. A lot of blue, a lot of red, right? Within the state of California, yes, yeah. absolutely. Okay. Um, and so, you know, there's, but we, ha- we're, we, have the, we have the same law. It's the, the same law. Everyone's enforcing the same law. It's that in certain communities, there's going to be an approach on how to enforce those laws. You know, um, um, and in uh, what you, to, to be fair about it, to have calm, reasoned 
analysis of the facts is going to is going to result in in the in decisions that are going to be time honored and to cater to public in outrage public um um Protest, opposition yeah. from the yeah. public. Yeah, exactly. You have to make unpopular decisions exactly. as an elected official. You know, yeah, exactly. You know, I recently read the story of John Adams. John Adams, um, president of the United States, founding father, also represented uh, the British soldiers who uh, killed people uh, in the Boston Massacre. Um, not a popular thing, but he had the presence to bring the dialogue down and deal with the facts. And those those uh, those British soldiers were acquitted. Yeah. You know, um, who, who knows what motivated, um, you know, the decision in this case, but um, it certainly was in a, in a uh, the dynamic was such that there was a lot of public outrage and the swiftness of the uh, going to the grand jury, the swiftness of the investigation. Um, and then, it, you know, buttressed that with uh, Judge Williams' decision, um, which where he found that um, the prosecutors have failed to present evidence. I'm reading from the, his decision, prosecutors had failed to present evidence that Goodson had given Gray a rough ride. Yeah, so we, we stand by now to see what happens with Lieutenant Rice. Uh, I think there was one charge already dropped or dismissed voluntarily by the prosecution before that case even got underway. Exactly. No, in fact, my understanding is that they, they dropped one of the um, official malfeasance uh, charges against, uh, against that particular lieutenant. Yeah, before before they presented their case in chief. Exactly. Before, exactly. Yeah, interesting. So we'll stand by to see what happens in in the case of Lieutenant Rice and the subsequent hung jury trial. Exactly. So I, I, I'll make the bold prediction that the Rice outcome is going to dramatically impact the decision to retry the initial officer. Exactly. We're coming up to the end of the show. Michael, thanks a lot for joining us today. My really pleasure. appreciate it, and I hope you'll come back. And please oh. say hello to everybody in your office for me. I will. Thanks for listening. Uh, remember that you can join us via email by emailing comments at wagnerandwinnick.com, comments at wagnerandwinnick.com. And as we sign off today, remember, if you don't know the law, know a lawyer. again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the voice america business channel for more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest please visit voiceamericabusiness.com 
The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. 